This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It is Wednesday, December 13th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe for Dave. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, there's a lot you need to know about the Registered Disability Savings Plan. Certified Financial Planner Ryan Chin gives you an overview. And where is the line of company loyalty when there is profitability? Kevin Shaw explores the question and considers the recent layoffs at Spotify. And the Huron Carol will be airing an APTN on APN, APTN this holiday season. Tom Jackson tells you all about the annual benefit concert. All that and more to come on today's show, but we begin with the top news stories of the day. We start off with COP28 as negotiators, negotiators at the climate conference have agreed to transition away from fossil fuels. Tom Rivers has this story. The language purposely vague, but as the president of the climate summit, Sultan Al-Jabir sees it. It is an enhanced, balanced, but make no mistake, historic package to accelerate climate action. The agreed deal says the transition will be done in a way that gets the planet to net zero greenhouse gas emissions in 2050. And it projects a world peaking its growing carbon pollution by 2025. Tom Rivers, ABC News at the Foreign Desk. Elsewhere on the international front, Hungary's prime minister says he plans to block EU's discussions on Ukraine's membership into the bloc. Charles de Ledesma files this report. Speaking to lawmakers in Hungary's parliament, Viktor Orban says the time for bringing Ukraine into the EU has not yet come and that the development of a strategic partnership with Kiev should be a prerequisite for beginning membership talks. Hungary's position has frustrated EU leaders who expected to vote on whether to begin talks on Ukraine's accession during a summit in Brussels that begins on Thursday. Hungary has also signalled that it will veto a final financial aid package for Kiev worth nearly $54 billion. I'm Charles Diladesma. Now south of the border, almost all of Tesla vehicles sold in the U.S. since 2015 have been recalled due to autopilot issues. Donna Warder has more. Tesla is recalling more than 2 million vehicles to fix a defective autopilot system that's supposed to ensure that drivers are paying attention. The recall comes following a two-year investigation by U.S. auto safety regulators into a series of crashes that happened while the autopilot partially automated driving system was in use. Some of those crashes were deadly. Documents posted by regulators say that Tesla is sending out a software update that includes additional controls and alerts. Some vehicles were already sent the software update on Tuesday. I'm Donna Water. Actor Andre Brower has passed away. Jason Nathanson reflects on the life of this actor in the world of television. Andre Brower was best known for two TV roles, both police officers in the 90s, starring for seven years as Detective Frank Pembleton on the NBC drama Homicide, Life on the Street. 
Then is the super dry Captain Raymond Holt on the sitcom Brooklyn Nine-Nine. That is without question the funniest story I've ever heard. That ran from 2013 to 2021. Homicide gave Brower his first Emmy and also his wife. He and actress Amy Brabson met while making the show, and they had three kids. Andre Brower died after a brief illness. He was 61. Jason Nathanson, ABC News, Hollywood. Looking ahead into 2024, it's set to be a big year for Canadian astronaut Jeremy Hansen. His mission to circulate the moon is set to lift off late next year, and he says that mission shows that the future of space exploration is bright. Now that I'm here and on the cusp of going into deep space, I see a direct benefit to our youth with this Artemis generation. I think the Apollo generation really is something real and tangible. And I think reminding youth today that we can do big things, we can collaborate, is just so important for them. Lastly, this story comes from the oddity file because have you ever enjoyed Doritos but thought, what if I could drink this? Well, now's your chance, I guess, sorta, if you're into that. Michelle Franson has more. Here's a combo you might not have thought of before, but maybe your taste buds craved. Doritos has teamed up with Danish distiller Empirical to create a new vodka made with the flavor, yep, of those nacho cheese Doritos. A press release on the snack-infused spirit suggests the vodka smells and tastes just like the real thing. The limited edition boozy cheesy drink is available this week and just in time for the holidays. The vodka flask costs more than a bag of Doritos, about $65 retail. Michelle Fran and ABC News. And that's it for the top news stories of the day. It's now time for the daily polls. But before we get into today's poll, let's reflect with the results of yesterday's poll where Dave asked you, federal politicians are preparing for their winter break. What should their policy priority be when they are back in 2024? 34% of you said the Accessible Canada Act, 44% of you said the National Disability Benefit, 11% agreed with me and said it should be Pharmacare, and then 11% said other. We had a, a great response on Facebook from Leona who wrote in that the Accessible Canada Act, I think, for our country to be accessible for everyone, a part of the act must deal with how Canada can be financially accessible to persons with disabilities and other marginalized groups. We need a well thought out, total package that can direct a more specific plan for the national disability benefit. Really tying two of those choices in together. I really like that response from Leona. And we want to hear more responses to today's daily poll because Ryan Chin is going to be here and stopping by in segment three. He's going to be talking all about the registered disability savings plan. And so we want to find out from you, do you have a registered disability savings plan? And if you vote no on today's poll, we want to know what's stopping you. So yes or no. So let's welcome in Elizabeth Moeller filling in as co-host and Laura Bain, our entertainment reporter. Get their thoughts and find out if they have an RDSP. Elizabeth, I'm going to start with you on this one. Pretty simple question. Do you have an RDSP? I do. Um, I've had one for about 14 years now. And 
I remember when I, and this was going back quite a while, when I tried to set it up, definitely a lot of hoops, you know, whether it was the disability tax credit form or, you know, getting your doctors to complete the form in a way that would actually allow you to get the tax credit, which of course you need to qualify for OD, our RDSP. The other thing uh, when I set up my RDSP was getting a bank that actually knew about it and could answer my questions. That was really challenging. I'm hopeful that's improved. I have a, a great financial advisor who actually specializes in working with folks with disabilities, but there was, I can see, I have it, but I can see why a lot of people don't, the, the hoops to sort of jump through. Um, you know, and as well, the reality is that many of us um, with disabilities live below the poverty line. So having something to invest, um, even though there are wonderful grants, and I know Ryan will get into that. Um, so it can feel a bit daunting if you're not somebody that has a whole lot of extra cash laying around. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a great point to, to highlight the fact that it's like, people need to know about it. And and that's why yeah, some uh, totally. a segment with Ryan, you know, it's it's great to raise that awareness because I myself didn't know about it for, for years. And I I kind of, I think it was, I was in my early twenties when I first, like we, we me and my parents first kind of found out about it. And then yeah. we started to do some Same research and, and then had to kind of, also educate and, and work with our financial advisor as well who, who didn't know about it before either and it's just kind of that that shared relationship you have someone you trust managing your money that can work with you to help kind of set this thing up but laura what about you do you have an rdsb i do and i've had one since fairly close to when the program started i think which was maybe back in 2008 so i think i just don't remember some of those hoops have it like having to jump through at the beginning but it's interesting elizabeth some of what you touched on was what came to mind for me is although i have an RDSP, I don't necessarily feel that I'm optimizing it. I have yes. a lot of it just sort of sitting in cash right now. And a big reason for that is lack of knowledge from my financial institution. So I had a meeting a few years ago with a banking officer specifically to talk about my RDSP and how to invest it. And, you know, we spent the whole time talking about an account that, you know, he thought would be great for me. And then at the end of the session, he discovered, oh, the RDSP doesn't qualify for that. So then we quickly sort of came up with something else only for me to get home and get an email saying, oh, sorry, the RDSP also doesn't qualify for that. So then I was oh. sort of left on my own. I reached out to the RDSP contact center. And at that time, I just didn't find them to be that helpful. They sort of left it to me to where I wanted to invest my money, which I felt nervous. Um, so, you know, hence why it's just sitting in cash. And yes, that's on me. I need to follow up. But um, I can certainly understand why it is daunting for people and how you can sort of run into trouble when you find your financial institution doesn't have a lot of knowledge on it. But that being said, I would still encourage people to get it, even if you're not able to contribute, because, you know, I've gotten that sort of grant every year, whatever it is, like $1,000 going in there from yeah. the government, and that does add up over a decade. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think we, we've all kind of highlighted the, the, the biggest issue beyond just, okay, the awareness of the RDSP, but also pairing the, the interest and in, in willingness to contribute and set up an account with a an expert in, in the uh, financial sector who also has knowledge or who is willing to, to work with you to really kind of navigate this sometimes very convoluted space and sphere to to make the right choices that are gonna can, uh, just result in the 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 best financial beneficial uh, state for you. So I I think that's very well put. And uh, so thank you both for for chiming in on the daily poll. We will be checking in with both of you later on in the show. But as I mentioned, I want to hear from you at home. 
Do you have a registered disability saving plan? And if not, what's stopping you? You can vote on our poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also send an email, feedback at ami.ca, or give us a call, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, where is the line between company loyalty when it comes to profitability? Kevin Shaw explores this question when considers the recent layoffs of Spotify. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe and for Dave. There have been several big changes in the world of big tech recently. Spotify laid off 17% of its workforce. OpenAI uh, removed and then reinstated their CEO, Sam Altman. And the government of Canada reached a deal with Google over ad revenue. Kevin Shaw has been following these storylines and others in the world of tech and he has some thoughts to share. Kevin is the host of Mind Your Own Business, and he joins now. Hello, Kevin, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Not too bad. So, Kevin, let's start off with the, the Spotify story. Like, what do you make of the decision to cut 17% of its workforce? Well, people need to remember that it's not just 17% now before Christmas. Spotify had made two additional cuts. They did cut by 2% and then by 6%, and now by 17 So that, that's a total of 25 That's a quarter of their workforce globally uh, just this past year. Um, obviously, it's unfortunate that, that people are losing their jobs over Christmas, but I think it's reflective of the kind of business environment, especially in, in technology that we're living in now, where... Um, companies are trying to satisfy shareholders and increase profits and, and people in these, uh, in these tech fields are unfortunately the ones who, um, you know, are, are being asked to, to vacate the positions. And I, Spotify was one of those, those companies early on during the pandemic that seemed to invest in, in, in growth and things like that. But now, since then, you know, as you mentioned, like 25% of their workforce has been uh, let go within the last year. Do you foresee more companies following Spotify's uh, kind of uh, position and, and laying off more of their workforces? I do. I think it's going to be something that we're going to see pick up next year. So, so just for some context here, in 2022, there were about 250,000 layoffs just in the tech sector, uh, you know, measurable ones that, that made the news. In 2023, there were almost 420,000, so almost a doubling year over year. I, I think we're going to see a big shift next year as... Um, a lot of disruption happens with with obviously things like AI and so forth, but I think companies are starting to become a lot leaner with um, with their workforces, asking fewer people to do more, or just companies just deciding to do less and saying, "Well, we we need fewer people, so 
you know, we we obviously don't need uh, to have a work, workforce of let's say a hundred thousand. We we can actually get by on a workforce of twenty thousand. Hmm. Um, obviously, we saw the same thing happen at at X last year when when Elon Musk laid off like seventy percent of the workforce. I I'm curious because Spotify had recently posted a, a profit, and uh, how do you feel about a company? deciding to to cut jobs in a time of generating profits for a company like how how does that kind of um uh decision sit with you well i mean it it ultimately comes down to the shareholders spotify is a public company and the shareholders want as much profit as they can out of the company i don't think it's i don't think it's it's a uh sensible business decision to look at let's say profit at the cost of building a great product. Um, and, you know, really the question here is, is the Spotify product going to suffer with lots of people being laid off? Or is this just another sort of utilitarian, uh, uh, you know, a music utility, basically, that people are just going to use and, and not think of when they're not using it? Or is Spotify actually going out there and building something that's sensational that people want to talk about? That's the big dilemma. Um, you know, do shareholders value profit over product? Um, and I think that's going to be a discussion that other tech companies are going to have to have in the next, in the coming year. And I, I've listed some of the kind of other major news uh, in the tech world that taken place over the last kind of month or, or two months. Mm -hmm. Like when you reflect on 2023, in the world of big tech, should it be seen as a year of downturn in the tech industry? I mean, there's still a lot of innovation happening. There's still a lot of things that are being done. Obviously, um, you know, I, th I think ChatGPT is is obviously, uh, you know, a huge story. AI in general is, is really big. Um, you know, these things tend to move in, in waves, right? So... Uh, whereas let's say hardware might've been really big 20 years ago, uh, all of a sudden that moved to software and then that moved to services and then that moved to, you know, cloud stuff. And now that, now this is moving over to AI. So, um, I imagine that there's going to be quite a shift. Um, but in terms of a, an actual downturn economically, I, I would say, yes, we're, we're probably looking at some hard times in, in the in the tech industry you know in the next uh, 12 to 18 months or so um but i also think that while this happens you're going to see a lot of innovation a lot of smaller companies uh go under the radar until something blows up in you know in the next 12 to 18 months and you did mention earlier like despite you know job losses and, and big moves and shifts within the industry there's still been quite a bit of innovation so Beyond the job cuts, what has been the biggest story of the year for you in the world of tech? Well, I definitely think in 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 our community, in our community, in the site loss community, um, the the integration of of Be My Eyes with with uh, ChatGPT has has been huge. It's I think it's been a huge game changer. Um, you know, ChatGPT came out at the end of 2022, and it, and it really kind of got going in 2023. Um, you know, I definitely think that that's a huge story. I think that's something that is going to kind of have lasting repercussions as as we go forward. 
Um, but I also think that, uh, you know, the crypto story was big with um, things like FTX, um, you know, going bankrupt um, and uh, Sam Bankman freed and, and all the stuff that he did. Um, obviously, the, you know, the, the, the Google News um, uh, stuff that was happening here in Canada and, um, uh, you know, podcasts being regulated. I think those, those are really big stories that um, I don't think we've seen the end of. Mm -hmm. Well, absolutely. I, I think we're kind of in this, especially with some of these stories in terms of the regulations and, and kind of uh, cracking down on the cryptocurrency stories. It's like we're, we're almost like in the midst of it. It's like the resolution will probably come mid mid next year once everything gets sorted out, because obviously, yes, the government of Canada has uh, come to an agreement with Google. Well, now Meta is the next big one. What is that going to look like in terms of how is a deal going to be reached? What is the deal going yeah. to look like if there is a deal reached? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a wait and see. Um, you know, once again, once once the politicians are involved, you can expect this to to just suck for everyone. So, um, I think that there's uh, that there's going to be a, you know, we might see a pushback. We might see a pushback with with people saying, you know, we want the government out of our podcasts and out of our news feeds and out of our advertising and and so forth. Um, uh, I, I, I'm starting to see kind of a grassroots movement start now with, with people saying no to government intrusion on, on, on all these different platforms. Mm, yeah, fair enough. And it's certainly something we will keep an eye on as we go into 2024. And I'm sure there'll be many more conversations with you, Kevin, around the latest breaking news in the world of tech. But for now, thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful day and uh, enjoy the, the, uh, the rest of 2023. And we'll chat in 2024. Indeed. Okay, that was Kevin Shaw, who is the host of Mind Your Own Business. Coming up after the break, there is a lot you need to know about the Registered Disability Saving Plan. Certified financial planner Ryan Chin gives you an overview. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Brown on AMI. I'm Alex Smythe. Let's talk about your money. The Registered Disability Savings Plan is one of the best investment vehicles available for people with disabilities. Less than one third of eligible Canadians have an RDSP though. If you are eligible for the disability tax credit, then you are eligible for the RDSP. The federal government created the plan in 2008, and Ryan Chin has more details on the ins and outs of the program. He's gonna help fill in the gaps for us. Ryan is a certified financial planner with Sun Life Financial. Hello, Ryan, how are you doing? I'm well, Alex, uh, thanks for having me here again. Always a pleasure. No, thank you for always coming back and, and bringing so much knowledge and expertise in the world of finances. So there are some big benefits when it comes to the RDSP as an investment vehicle, especially when the grants and the bonds are included within that. What do you think, though, of the RDSP? 
Uh, well, Alex, I mean, the, the the registered disability savings plan, wonderful savings program, I must say, uh, you know, it, it, there's no other savings account in Canada that uh, has such a, I'll say, robust grant and bond system. So uh, in, in principle, wonderful program. If you have the opportunity to take advantage of it, I absolutely encourage all folks to, to get on board. So the, what is the process of, of opening one? If someone is interested who doesn't have one already, what is the process and the steps that they will have to take to open an RDSP account? Yeah, well, I mean, quite simply, uh, there are a few steps, of course. Uh, one, you must be eligible for the disability tax credit. Now, there's a slight application form uh, for the disability tax credit. Um, the good news is, is they've widened the uh, the parameters on eligibility for the disability tax credit. And now folks with type 1 diabetes are eligible. Um, so it is important that even if you may have applied for the disability tax credit in the past, it is important to, you know, get right back on that horse, try it out again, submit that application and see, uh, see if you're eligible. Now, one component of that is uh, there's a, a form that, that individuals must fill out and the other one your doctor must fill out. The doctor fills out a form that confirms that it's severe and prolonged disability. And, um, you know that that's sort of the 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 overarching criteria now how does someone go about doing it well connect with a financial institution certainly uh myself here at my office uh here at sun life we're happy to to help facilitate that for you and and or any financial institution that that you're familiar with you go in you sit down and chat with them and they can help administrate the process of opening a registered disability savings plan and so let's dive a bit deeper into this plan. So what are some of the machinations around the grant and the bonds that are included as part of this plan? Yeah, that's a great question, Alex. And, and you know, I'll be honest, it's a little bit confusing. So I'll try to keep keep it fairly high level and, and try to make it as easy as possible. I mean, the, the underlying uh, idea of this grant bond program is that um, the government is offering up to approximately $70,000 of grant money and up to $20,000 of bond money. Now, for the grant money, this is a matching program where they're going to contribute, uh, you know, $3,500 for every $1,500 you contribute in any one given year. For the bond there is no matching component required for this portion. However, you must be under a uh, annual um, uh, annual household uh, annual threshold for household, and it's roughly twenty nine thousand dollars. So if your if your if your household annual uh, income is under that twenty nine k, then the government will actually just contribute that bond up to one thousand dollars per year to ensure that uh, you can reach that uh, that that um, total 20k uh, amount yeah and that, that's it's 
that's, I think, one of the, the real benefits about this program is, as you say, it's like there's the two separate streams. There's the the, the matching contribution of, of the grant, and then there is just the, the bond that can be offered without having to uh, invest any money in order to be eligible that, for that as long as you meet that threshold, if you're underneath that, that cap that the government has set. But let's say, uh, so let's continue on, like, uh, talk about the the... Uh, like when and how these benefits will max out in in this plan? Yeah, so I mean, sort of once we get down into the nitty gritty, more of the fine print, as it were. I mean, uh, you you're, you're going to max out uh, your grant uh, once you either hit seventy thousand dollars or age the year in which you turn forty nine. Uh, similarly, for the bond, uh, you'll max out at the twenty thousand or the year in which you turn forty-nine. Now, I say the year in which you turn forty-nine because you know it doesn't matter if your birthday's in January or December. It's it's that's the final year that the government will will continue to uh, contribute or match towards the registered disability savings plan. So uh, uh, if, if you're, you know, 40, 48 years old and you're thinking, hey, I don't have a registered disability savings plan uh, and I really want to get going on one of these, you know, you've got a very, very short window because the last year of contribution is the year in which you turn 49. Mm. And so that's all about putting the money in and, and how to get enrolled in the program. What about when it comes time to make withdrawals, what are the rules or in stipulations around actually withdrawing cash or um, funds from the RDSP? Yeah, so there, there, there are a few parameters around the disability income payment, or the, uh, or the, they call it the DAP. Uh, um, what, what, um, what happens is. The money that's contributed personally, so the money that you put into the to the to the program uh, or to the account, is it, it can be pulled out tax free. That's your principal deposit. Any grant money and any bond any bond money and or any interest earned are all taxable components of the withdrawal. So it's really important at the time of withdrawal that you work with your financial planner, your, your financial advisor to make sure that you're pulling, you're withdrawing the money in the most tax efficient way so that it doesn't override your taxes and, and kind of clip you at the end of the year with a, with a bigger tax return. Now there's one more piece uh, to this puzzle that's really important. Um, and that is that they will they will uh, uh, contribute to your to your account, but when you're starting to redeem the money, you you must wait a minimum of ten years from the last grant and or bond contribution before accessing the money. So typically, folks in which they turn 49, they stop contributing because they're not getting any more grant or bond money. And then typically at their age 60, that's when they would start to access these funds because uh, that will satisfy the 10-year window and allow there be no clawback of any of the grant bond money. Uh, I know that we're getting a little bit in the weeds and a little bit confusing, but uh, uh, it's really important to understand the program 
before uh, diving in too deep. Well, and, and it's a very key point because so for myself, like I do have an RDSB and the way I've always viewed it is it's sort of like my kind of retirement savings like uh, kind of plan. That's how I've always viewed it. It's going to be there for around the age of retirement. As you say, it's like age 60. That's when you can start withdrawing it without these potential clawbacks from the government. Is that how like folks should kind of view the RDSB? That this is the long term vehicle. This is going to be serving you for when you get closer to the age of retirement. Yeah, absolutely. Alex, you hit the nail on the head. This is a retirement vehicle. The reason that the government is offering this program is to set folks up for the future. We know that uh, the Ontario Disability Supports Program and or your, your provincial supports program, wherever you are across the country, will only be so good uh, at, at your age 60 and or your age 65, this is just an extra little, uh, um, you know, bump to give you a few extra dollars to help make life just that much easier as you move forward. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, it is a retirement vehicle. I would not ever recommend to anyone that this is any short time money. This is long term money. And, and, you know, uh, if you don't need to pull it out at 60, you don't have to. It just happens to be, you know, your first eligible opportunity. If you can hold off to 65 or hold off to 70, that might be advantageous to your income stream as you move forward through retirement. So one th one of the things I found very surprising, Ryan, and uh, I gave the stat at the top of the segment, is the fact that around like a third of eligible Canadians uh, who can uh, take advantage of this program are not using it, are not involved with it, haven't contributed. Why do you think more eligible Canadians don't have an RDSP? Uh, I would say some of it is awareness. And then some of it is timing of the RDSP. Now, the RDSP uh, program launched, uh, you know, roughly 20, uh, 2008. Um, you know, many people in that demographic, uh, uh, sorry, around 2008 might have already been over 45 mm -hmm. uh you know so uh, you know coming in late uh the number i think may be a little bit skewed when you think about there are a lot of folks who would love to start one of these uh but they're in their mid 40s already or or they're over the age of 40 uh or sorry over the age of 50 and they're not eligible so i mean um there is that part uh, to that stat. Uh, and then the other portion of the stat is awareness. And I mean, I, you know, uh, I commend uh, AMI for, you know, putting this out there because it's important that folks are aware that these types of programs uh, uh, are available to, to folks with disabilities and to, to bring that awareness and education out there. So, so more people can get, get involved, you know, meet with your financial advisor or plan financial planner and uh, have them help you ensure that you can capture some of this grant money for your retirement future. And before I let you go, Ryan, one last question. In terms of the awareness and, and getting better awareness, not just for the individual who would qualify, but also the financial institution, your financial planner, your financial advisor, what 
should kind of folks do if if they're finding that uh, their uh, the counsel they seek may not be as familiar with RDSP grants and, and the rules and stipulations around it? Because as you, you had talked about, there can be quite a few and it can get a bit complicated. So how can uh, folks who, who want to kind of work with their financial planner, how can they go about educating themselves and their financial advisor around this program? And that's a great question, Alex. And I think it takes us back to our topic from last week, which is you got to interview your planner or your advisor. You've got to talk to them. You've got to find out what they know. Um, you know, it's not as simple when working with a financial planner, working with a financial advisor, um, that uh, you're going to click or they're going to know all the idiosyncrasies about you. What's important is that you take the time to meet with, with that individual and or a few others and say, you know, ask those questions, have those interviews, see what they know, uh, and are they going to suit you the best? I will say uh, certified financial planners, um, these are folks who have gone to extra school. Uh, it is a component. It is an actual element of the, the financial planning exam. Um, so I, I would say that any certified financial planner or any CFP uh, level advisor will absolutely be able to service your, your situation. Um, but uh, there are a few, uh, um, you know, folks um, just coming out of school may or may not be as familiar. Maybe the institution may or not may or may not be as familiar. But I do I do encourage you to to ask those questions uh, and make sure that that you're getting out of the 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 uh, uh, situation what you need to because you're going to be paying an administrative fee for those uh, for those funds that are invested. So it's uh, it's important that you're going to get uh, get what you deserve. Absolutely, Ryan. Thank you so much for this. Yeah, no problems. I uh, love love the chat, and I do always appreciate getting the time to uh, to uh, dialogue. So thank you very much, and season's greetings. Yeah, you as well. We'll chat in 2024. That was Ryan Bradley Chin, who is a certified financial planner at Sun Life Financial. Coming up in one minute's time, Elizabeth Moeller has the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian Press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Canada's main stock index moved lower yesterday, weighed down by losses in energy and utilities, while U.S. markets rose after America's latest inflation report ahead of today's interest rate announcement. Toronto's TSX index lost 84 points yesterday to close at 20,233. New York's Dow Jones average gained 173 points and the Nasdaq added 100. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index gained 82 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning unchanged at 73.53 cents U.S. The co-founder of one of Canada's biggest companies in the space of artificial intelligence says for him, it's all about the simple uses of AI. Nick Frost of Toronto-based AI company Cohere says he gets most excited about AI use cases that other people would see as mundane. One example he cites is using AI to extract information from resumes, cutting out the tedium of filling out job application questionnaires. From the Canadian Press Business desk. I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. It's now time for the weather report with Elizabeth Muller. Elizabeth, uh, I've been covering and following the weather patterns in the maritime region. That storm that's uh, still lingering has got your attention as well. 
Yes, yeah, just picking up on, um, you know, your report from, from yesterday, a very disruptive storm, as, as we know, is going to turn its attention to Newfoundland after battering those maritimes with some heavy rain and powerful winds, which, as we know, have caused numerous disruptions and widespread power outages throughout. Um, that powerful storm that came close to meeting the definition of a weather bomb certainly made its intensity felt and known across the Maritimes on Monday and yesterday as well. Power outages actually, Alex, climbed into the tens of thousands across Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and PEI. Temperatures are going to drastically drop to below freezing in New Brunswick and into the low single digits in Nova Scotia today. And rain and winds will continue overnight into this morning for Cape Breton and for Newfoundland, but at much less intensities. So residents, especially in Newfoundland, were, were warning people where the strongest winds are to um, really be careful about <clears throat> outdoor holiday decorations, like those inflatable Santas, are well secured because those can cause accidents and injuries if those are blowing around. So do keep your Santas uh, inflated, but perhaps tied down or bring those guys in just for the time being so we don't have a flying Santa. Uh, over back to you, Alex. Okay, yeah, you don't want Santa or Rudolph uh, taking no. a flight too soon. We don't want, to not, yet, not yet, not yet. We don't want them taking flight yet. Exactly. Thank you, Elizabeth. We'll check in later on in the show with you. But coming up after the break, a new and witty version of Cinderella is coming to the Neptune Theater in Halifax. Halifax community reporter Milena Kazanavichus gives you all the details. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. A new and witty version of Cinderella is coming to the Neptune Theatre in Halifax. This production will take stage just in time for the holidays, so Halifax uh, community reporter Milena Kavanagh has all the details, and she is definitely pumped for the holidays because she is already in festive gear with a pair of antlers, uh, uh, reindeer antlers on her head. Hello, Milena. How are you doing? Hello, Alex. Happy holiday seasons. Greetings, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, all of it. <laughs> yes, seasons. Greetings to you as well. So let's get into the uh, the Cinderella production because, Milena, you had some involvement with consultation into the production. What? How were you involved in this? Okay. Um, well, as as most of our viewers and listeners would know, that for the past uh, year and a half to two years. I've been doing a lot of consulting on audio description for Neptune, which is our largest theater here in uh, Shibokta, Halifax. And uh, so we, you know, Neptune is actually showing quite a lot of um, live performances with audio description, including this Sunday, uh, Cinderella, performance of Cinderella. It's a family comedy musical just for, for the holidays here. Um, starting at 2 p.m. at Neptune, 2 p.m. It is a masked performance, so please put on your masks. And people who are blind or partially sighted get a special code when booking online. So put in audio, and your ticket will be $25 instead of starting at $81. Uh, so $25 plus your uh, guided assistant gets in free of charge. 
which is, I think is a phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal price. So this Sunday, Cinderella, uh, bring your family, uh, put in audio. If you're blind or partially sighted, uh, you will have uh, a headset to listen to a live audio description. And, um, uh, and if you have any problems, I'll put out a telephone number, which is 902-429-7070. And that's the Neptune box office. Perfect. And so uh, you, you've given all the, so, so much great information, uh, Milena, on, on what folks should know going uh, before booking and, and uh, your, your involvement within it. But what do you th make of the uh, this take on Cinderella? Are you into the witty and fun uh, and quirky style that they, they chose to go with? Oh, oh, definitely. You know, it's 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 all good for the family. You know, the kids still get to see Cinderella, the story, but um, uh, they're they're doing songs such as um, "Girls Just Want to Have Fun" and the Ballroom Blitz. So I can help doing that. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, you know, and that and then uh, there's all sorts of silly jokes and and things uh, such as that. So for the adults, something to entertain and amuse, and for the kids to still be, you know, mesmerized by by the whole. Uh, you know Cinderella, Cinderella story and the mice and and uh, everything like that. So I, I think it's a great uh, twist on it. Perfect. Yeah. So as you mentioned, it is a Sunday, December seventeenth at two p.m. Atlantic time at the Neptune Theater. And for more information, you can go to neptunetheater.com. NeptuneTheater.com. Now, moving from the theater stage to the music stage, Milena, there, uh, before the winter solstice on December 21st, you have a opportunity in Cape Breton to enjoy a concert by the Second Wind Community Band, and they'll be sharing their takes on some Christmas classics. So why did you want to highlight this uh, kind of Christmas concert that's going to be taking place? Okay, so last month, Alex, you and I talked about 62 Tubas doing classic Christmas songs in Halifax. Uh, there were 45, in fact, um, but it was phenomenal, okay? It was really, really great, and I'm a big supporter of community bands. So, you know, anywhere from the, the people in the bands are 18 to 90 years old, and, and it's really great, great performances. This one in Cape Breton, I thought I'd swing us all the way out to uh, Sydney, just only five hours away from the peninsula here. Um, so it's the Second Wind Community Band, as you mentioned already, uh, at the University of Cape Breton in the uh, Boardmore Playhouse. Tickets are $20 for adults, $5 for students and children. And um, it's on December the 21st at 7.30. And, you know, it's going to be, uh, again, classic Christmas songs and music. And, and I think it's just, it's a really great way to support your community bands. It's a really great way for to kick off your season and and uh, and you know enjoy enjoy live music if if you're that kind of person like I am. Well, and what is it about that live music and in the band environment that really adds to kind of the the Christmas magic and the the holiday magic this time of year for you? I that's a good question. I I don't know. I, you know, I grew up with the I guess. A, a musical mom and and I've always enjoyed music and and to me it's there's just something there's just something about being in front of a live band and and you know in junior high and high school I was part of a band and it's it, it's just this 
feeling that you're right there. You know, it's unlike when you're going to a concert uh, and there's thousands of people and you, you really can't get close to the artist or the singer or whatever. But but just live community bands, they're a bit of a smaller venue. And I mean, you're right there and it's, I don't know, makes you shake your booty, tap your toes. <laughs> Absolutely. Even know. even if it's Christmas music, you know, you still want to yeah. you still want to do it. But yeah, so that yeah. is the Second Wind Community <laughs> Concert Band, and they are performing December twenty first, seven thirty p.m. Atlantic time. As you mentioned, it's at Kate Breton University's uh, Boardmore Theater, and you can find out more information by going to Second Wind Community Band dot com. Second Wind Community Band dot com. You had one final topic you wanted to also highlight, Milena, and it has to do with the world of film. So the Trinity Square Video Entangled Art Plus Disability have partnered together on a project called 1000 Minutes. What is this project highlighting? Okay, so basically I'm putting this in to save the date, which is really important. So January 2024, uh, um, the 25th, 26th, and 27th. And um, it was going to be live in Toronto, but executive members such as I um, have uh, geared it up. So it's going to go virtual online. So January 25, 26, 27. And um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a creative project by Trinity uh, Square Videos. It's a, it's a bunch of film and video artists. Uh, the, the videos and the films will all, every single one will be audio described that will be on um, your live channel feed. We, we not all the information is there yet. We're just asking you to save the date. So you know, I'll, Alex, and I'll ask you: When's the last time you've been to a film festival where there was at least even one audio described uh, film for people such as yourself and myself? You know, you know it, it's been years, yeah. uh, especially yeah. with the nature of the pandemic. I used to always go to things like like TIFF as well as some other smaller yeah. community film festivals and in, in especially around my neck of the woods in, in Hamilton, Ontario. I used to enjoy yeah. those, but it's been a while. But to, to have every single film audio described uh, and also with the partnership with Tangled Art and Disability, Art Plus Disability, I, I'm very familiar with the great work they do. This sounds like such an exciting project. You mentioned you're, you're an executive member. So tell us a bit more about your role within this uh, project. <laughs> Well, so so when I say that, I it's um I you know I was part of the creative team and um, just consulting on some of on some of the the videos that will be chosen uh, for the fil for the festival itself on 25, 26, and twenty seventh of January, um, uh, because we we did get a lot of submissions. Now all submissions that were accepted, there was about sixty of them, will end up being online at the at the end and after the film festival itself and they too will all be uh audio described uh by Kat Jermaine and and uh her team of of uh partners and there and there's a uh, quite a few of audio describers that are involved um and I'll, sh I'll put out a shout out as well uh Ramya right there out of AMI she'll be curating with me as well so um yeah so I've, I've been from the beginning for a whole year on this project it has been exhausting it has been fun, um, and it's something that's close to my heart because, uh, you know, I, I too enjoy uh, films and videos, um, but I've never been to one where there's even been an offer for me with even one audio-described film. So every single one will be audio-described, and and I think it's I think this is a a great move, and I think that's what we need to keep on doing. So January 25, 26, 27, 2024. 
next month I shall have all full information. Just save the date for now. Perfect, and that is the 1,000 minutes. Milena, thank you so much. You've been very busy and getting involved with lots of very different <laughs> things. Uh, have yourself a wonderful day and a wonderful holidays, and we'll chat with you in 2024. Great, and Alex, I just wanna send out to you and all our audience, may your turkeys be stuffed, your stockings not have holes in them, and may Santa not get it stuck in anyone's chimney either. Very good. <laughs> Very good. That is Milena Kavanavichis, who is a community reporter in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Coming up in 60 seconds, Laura Bain shares the latest news in the world of entertainment. But first, Epic Games won an epic court battle against Google. Mike Dubusky has the story in Tech Trends. A San Francisco jury has ruled Google operates an illegal monopoly with its app store, known as the Play Store. It's the result of a legal battle with Epic Games, the maker of Fortnite, which sued Google three years ago. Epic alleged Google's control of app distribution on its Android operating system and its control of in-app payment systems hurt its business. Google plans to appeal the decision. No, it's not over. Herbert Hovenkamp is a professor of antitrust law at the University of Pennsylvania. He says whether Google will win on appeal ultimately comes back to whether or not the jury accurately defined the market for app stores. The plaintiff's victory hinges on the courts willing to accept a relevant market limited to Android devices. Epic lost a similar lawsuit against Apple and its app store two years ago, which defined the market more broadly. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. And now it's time for the Entertainment Report with Laura Bain. Uh, let's bring her in now. Laura, you want to talk all about Netflix because they've decided to pull back the curtain a bit and share some more information on what people are watching. Yeah, they sure have. So Netflix has released its first ever report on streaming numbers for individual shows and movies. The report is called What We Watched, a Netflix Engagement Report. And it's easily searchable online if anyone is curious and wants to look at the detailed information. So prior to now, Netflix has had its top 10 lists and most popular, although those have actually only been around since 2021, which sort of surprised me. But the more detailed streaming numbers have been kept private by the company. So they're saying that they're going to release these types of reports twice a year now, and it will reveal the exact number of hours viewed for every title with more than 50,000 hours viewed. So the report didn't mention either the uh, actor's strike or the writer's strike, but it's safe to say that there's a connection because both of those contracts stipulated that streaming platforms needed to be more transparent about mm -hmm. uh, their numbers. And of course, that's connected to residuals, which was uh, one of the main sticking points in that strike. Uh, so this particular report revealed information between January and June of 2023. Now, just to give a couple of highlights, over 100 billion hours of viewing during that time. That's astonishing and honestly, to me, a little bit scary. Um, I was trying to break that down in terms of how many people are in the world. And I know, of course, lots of people aren't watching Netflix, but uh, yeah, that's a lot of hours, hours of television. 30% um, of the viewing is non-English titles. I would have actually expected that to be higher, although, of course, a lot of English titles have uh, other language options and those wouldn't be counted. 
Now, something to keep in mind is that it is for hours viewed, so TV shows are going to be able to rack up a lot of the top five most watched shows during that time. We had The Night Agent Season 1, Ginny and Georgia Season 5, Queen Charlotte, A Bridgerton Story. So, Alex, I'm wondering if the top five surprises you at all or if you've watched any of these shows. So, yes, it definitely surprises me. And I, out of the five listed, I've only seen one of them. I've seen mm. the first season of Wednesday. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Do I think it was the like the fourth best series on on netflix uh, or or uh would have i would have thought would have been the fourth most popular uh, series on netflix not by a long shot i'm hugely surprised that the night agent is number one here i i to me it always just looked like a show that okay you know it's another kind of generic action thriller suspense kind of series okay it'll be a fun watch but i didn't expect that many people to watch it laura like of of some of the big names that came to my mind, like I think of Beef, All the Light We Cannot See, even The Fall of the House of Usher. I'm surprised not any of those Netflix series didn't kind of creep up further on these these rankings to supplant, you know, shows I honestly have never heard of before. Did the, did this list surprise you? Oh, it did a little bit. And yeah, I hadn't heard of, um, I I actually wasn't familiar with The Night Agent and seeing it at number one, I was like, was this that big a deal that I, you know, it's not really my type of thing anyway. I did watch Ginny and Georgia and Queen Charlotte, no surprise there. Uh, <laughs> the Glory is a South Korean thriller. Um, I hadn't heard of that. I think something to keep in mind is just the time span. So these are only reflecting numbers from January to June. So not overall. So some big shows like Squid Games, Stranger Things, we know are maybe the most watched shows ever on Netflix, uh, just might not be, you know, watched as much during that time. I was sort of surprised not to see older shows like, you know, Seinfeld, The Office, Gilmore Girls higher on the list and, you know, not necessarily breaking that top five, but I had to scroll down pretty far to get to them. Um, so... I don't know, maybe people kind of got their binge watching out of their system when they were on lockdown in 2020, 2021. But yeah, it surprised me a bit. But, you know, I think there's that caveat that this data is only going to um, be able to give us so much, you know, information. But as we start to get it um, every six months, it will be able to be compiled to give us a, a broader picture. I was trying to find like overall lists, but of course we don't really have that because this information has been kept private. Yeah, absolutely. And it's certainly something we will dive into next time uh, a list like this one comes out. But for now, Laura, thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thanks, Alex. You as well. That was entertainment reporter Laura Bain. Coming up after the break, the Huron Carol will be airing on APTN this holiday season. Tom Jackson tells you all about the annual benefit concert. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. And now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and streaming in audio on AMIplus.ca. I'm Alex Mike in for Dave Brown. It's Wednesday, December 13th, 2023. 
Coming up on the second hour of the show, the Mohawk Student Association has recruited a new student on their board. Emily Shavers explains how she'll utilize the role to improve accessibility for students on campus. And it's the time for New Year's resolutions. A new Paula gives advice on how to better tackle your goals. All that and more on the second hour of the show. But first, the Huron Carol is celebrating its 36th anniversary. The benefit concert graced the stages of the Rebecca Cohn Auditorium in Halifax a couple weeks ago. Now it's time to set, it's set to captivate audiences once more through a series of special presentations on APTN. Tom Jackson is the founder and host of the Huron Carol, and through this benefit, he has raised over $250 million in hum uh, for various humanitarian causes. He is a renowned musician, actor, and activist, and he joins in now. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Alex. It's nice to be here. So first off, I wanna congratulate you on 36 years of this benefit concert. Who did you bring on stage with you when you had the uh, concert this year in Halifax? I've well, got uh, my good friend Shannon Gay, <laughs> Natalie. I, I know all of these folks, so so when I say my good friend, you can just put that in front of the the names. But uh, Shannon Gay, Natalie McMaster, Beverly Mahood, Andrea Menard, Bill Silk, uh, Misha Burger Goesman Lee, Lorena McKennett, the Halifax Camerata Singers and uh, members from the Sullivan's, Co Sullivan's Crossing cast, namely uh, Scott Peterson, Morgan Cohan, and Chad Michael Murray. Oh, that's phenomenal. Now, the Huron Carol is actually based off of Canada's oldest Christmas Carol, which shares the, the same name. So how has the benefit concert evolved over the past three decades? Well, it's been quite the journey. Um, this project started in Toronto, um, I had uh, a different part of my life then. I was living in a hole in the ground when I was 38 years old. And um, I was the architect of my own demise, you might say. And one night I had a, a visitor and a visitor came to me and said, you know what, Tom, I'm gonna send you an angel that's worse off than you. And if you help that angel, I'm going to help you. And I said, well, how would I know this angel is going to have wings? And he said, no. But I decided to take the challenge. And when I went out looking for the angel, I realized that there were a lot of angels out there that were worse off than me. And that basically brought me here to you. But on that first year, I went to Council Fire which was an organization uh, downtown Toronto and still exists. And they had uh, a shortage of hampers the year before. And I said, how many? And they said, about 300. And they said, you know, why don't we, why don't we see if we can buy the hampers, buy the food. And uh, so I called a number of my friends and uh, we put on this concert because we were in the territory of Huronia, we called it the Huron Carol. Um, and it was uh, originally uh, in an old bar, uh, which was called the Buck, <laughs> Silver Dollar. But they uh, opened up the Buck for us. And I called my friends and we had, uh, did a show. 
Now, we didn't raise that much money at that first show, but what did happen was people like you um, got a hold of the story and thought it was worth talking about, and it caught wind in the city. And the next day after the show, I went to Council Fire, and there was um, cars and trucks full of food um, for Council Fire for about a Let's see, about a mile. We called them miles back then. But that's how it started. And uh, and it continued and evolved. And I ran into organizations, food banks and, and the like, um, that needed help. And so it kept evolving. And over the 36 years, as you mentioned, it's raised a significant amount of money for those who are in need. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's 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 so phenomenal and and so for this year's uh, benefit concert you chose to support the canadian red cross why were they chosen uh to to partner with and support this year i've been an ambassador for the canadian red cross for uh, a decade and this year uh, there's been all sorts of challenges with water wind and fire uh, across the country first nation communities and the red cross is always there up front and it's always there at the back. So they're there before, they're there afterwards. And I applaud them uh, and I champion them as much as I can. And this year, because we're out on the East Coast, there was so many uh, tragic events that happened out here this year. I thought to myself, well, maybe we can do something while we're here. And that's why it uh, ended up here in Halifax. And so can you tell me a bit more of what those donations are are going to be going towards within uh, when when folks are encouraged to donate to the Canadian Red Cross? Well, there um, the Red Cross services First Nations right across the country. So this isn't just for uh, the Mi'kmaq, who are the traditional people here. It's not just for these folks. It's people for... Uh, for across the country, like uh, Yellowknife and Hay River and places like that, and Fort Mac and um, into BC. And this show uh, represents and covers the country from the Yukon, Northwest Territories, goes into BC, uh, goes into the prairies and Ontario and Quebec, and it ends up uh, landing in the Maritimes here. Tom, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and telling us a bit more about uh, the Huron Carol. I'm excited to check it out when it airs on APTN. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Have an awesome day. <laughs> that is Tom Jackson, who is the founder and host of the Huron Carol. As mentioned, the concert will air on December 14th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And there will be encore presentations over through the holiday season. So you can also stream it on APTN Lumi for December 14th and onwards. So to learn more about how to donate to the Canadian Red Cross, you can visit huroncarol.ca. And just so you know, Carol is spelled C-A-R-O-L-E, C-A-R-O-L-E. That was Tom Jackson. Now let's shift gears a bit and talk about the world of sports for a sports chat with Brock Richardson. Brock, you've had one major story kind of on your mind, a thought, so to speak, all about players and pro athletes 
and their connection to playing in Canada and depending on the league, Toronto specifically. Yeah, so we're talking about Canada as a whole, but I'm using the Toronto uh, story as the jumping pad for the conversation. I spent a lot of time yesterday uh, listening to different uh, radio programs, and they were talking a lot about uh, Shohei Otani and him uh, not signing with the Blue Jays, which is still a, a top story. But one of the things that came out was starting pitcher Kevin Gosman for the Toronto Blue Jays posted on X, formerly known as Twitter, and he said, I hate seeing people talk crap. He did not use the word crap, but for television, I will say that uh, about Toronto, like they know what they're talking about. And and he, he's talking about the fact that if you're not in Toronto, you don't necessarily know what the fan, fan base is like. He went on to say, um, until you are here and you know how passionate the fan base is, you don't really know. So that spawned a conversation for me to have with you. Of why do you think it's so hard for people to grasp how good the fan base is in Toronto when they don't really know? Well, I, I think in the context of less, uh, so Kevin Gossman, obviously a pitcher in the MLB for the Toronto Blue Jays, if, if you examine it from the perspective of baseball and basketball, where Toronto is the only team in the uh, in the league that's not in the U.S., there there is just a kind of, I, I, I guess it's like a misconception. It, it's the idea that, well, it, it's kind of Toronto. It's just a little quirky place, you know. Oh, it's it's in Canada. Oh, they don't really care. Like baseball is America's pastime. All oh, basketball is truly an American game. The Americans always dominate, and you know we have all the big stars, things like that. I think that it's built on that kind of reputation, and with the exception of the Raptors, I mean the Blue Jays haven't really won anything since the early 90s so it's also there's that recency bias as well that you know it can sometimes be hard to attract uh, major stars to go to this market but when you are exploring it from those two leagues you also have such a captivated audience that is unlike any other um, kind of market in in the league because you have one team for an entire country you have a diehard fan base that is willing to support you, but also be hypercritical of you at the same time. So there's a lot of pressure that can come from it as well. Now, the, the, it may change depending on the sport. Obviously, as you stop hockey and being a Maple Leaf fan or player in Toronto, it's a completely different story. But I, I think there's just a, there, there are misconceptions that haven't really been dispelled. And, and that's really where I view it. What about you, Brock? It, it almost feels like when you talk about uh, baseball and basketball being like there's only the one Canadian uh, franchise, it almost sort of feels like to me that the American media feels like, as you point out, that they're almost far away. It's almost like we're in a whole different league of our own and we just kind of come along and, and, and play in the league. I, I, I do think that's part of it. As a, as a sort of follow-up question, do you think it's as simple as if... Toronto sports teams, a la the Blue Jays and Raptors. It wasn't too long ago since the Raptors did this, but if they won more championships, do you think the perception would change? Or is it just this is going to be the perception? Doesn't matter whether they win five, six, ten championships, two, whatever the number is. I, I think that's it's always going to 
to have be that perception there, even when the Raptors won, right? There, the people were very quick to be like, oh, there's an asterisk around this. Oh, this is kind of, because it was a, it was during like, you know, the, the pandemic era. And it's just like, people are like, well, is it really a championship? You know, how good are the the Raptors? And, and oh, do they Durant really got injured, yada, 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 yeah. Exactly, exactly. So there was always going to be these caveats. But I mean, you look at a market of Toronto, yeah, you look at baseball and uh, basketball. Well, they're in Milwaukee. They're in some of these like sm uh, football. You know, you you have markets of like a Green Bay, Wisconsin. Toronto is a far bigger market than kind of these places. Yet, it it never quite gets that same respect. Those those conversations are never had in in those markets. So, it, it is unfair. I think it's something they're always going to have to put up with. And until you get a ton of big marketable stars saying, hey, I'm choosing to go to Toronto. I think that perception is going to stay the same. You get stars that go there, but not faces of the league that are in those uh, in on those teams and in, in Canada. So until that changes, I, I think this perception will. Yeah, remain. because even Kawhi, just very quickly, people will yeah. say he didn't choose to be here. He was traded here. Uh, and and I think to your point, that's part of it. Until someone, like you said, until someone decides I'm going to be here, and I think Shohei Otani was the quote-unquote closest we could have got. Until someone decides of uh, high stature name, until someone decides I'm going to stay here, that's when it's going to change. And I think Shohei Otani may have been able to change that, but obviously he chose not to, and he chose to do something that he wanted to do and he's within his rights to do that if he's going to make money he's going to he's he's able to do that and that's what the benefit of free agency is in sports yeah i also don't think toronto was going to give him 700 million dollars but that's a moot point at this, <laughs> this stage brock thank you so much have yourself a wonderful day thank you that was Brock Richardson at the Sport Desk. Coming up after the break, the Mohawk Student Association has recruited a new student on their board of directors, Emily Shavers. She will explain how she'll utilize the role to improve accessibility for students on campus. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. There's a lot of activity happening at post-secondary institutions right now. Classes are wrapping up for the year. Exams and final projects are coming due. And the long-awaited Christmas break is just around the corner. Emily Shavers is in the midst of all of these things right now. She is the founder of True Faces, and she is also a student at Mohawk College. Hello, Emily. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? I'm not too bad. So, Emily, you wear many hats currently. You are a business owner, a student, as well as a member of the Mohawk Student Association. What can you tell me about your role with the MSA? Yeah, so I was actually in the role that I currently have now gone back to in 2021 through the pandemic when I was doing my first diploma and have now gone back to be on their board of directors once again. Um, and part of that means that I get to advocate for students, you know, every time a, a policy or a fees come around, 
we get to be the people who kind of are approving them and making sure that student needs are being met, which is um, very unique. We kind of get to be the people who put the issues forward, but not necessarily those who solve the problem or in implement the solution. And we kind of get just get to say like, you know, this is what needs to be improved and tasking different people with, uh, with coming up with that solution. And so how have you found kind of the return to the role so far? You know what, I've found a lot of changes even within um, the past two years. Something about a students association is you have students who rotate through these positions super frequently. So even within this school year, they've kind of switched to um, having some board members who have had to leave because of school commitments. And they've kind of, that's why they're doing onboarding kind of in November, December, um, only until April. So you have this really frequent turnover period. And so you find a lot of differences coming back now in, you know, just how things are structured. I found even personally, my knowledge of the role and the ideas that are being presented has been increased just kind of as like a maturity thing over the past two years. So a lot of really good changes that I've seen. And so in terms of the kind of the role and being on the board, why did you want to go back and rejoin the board? You know, part of the really great changes is something that I, I always find in my life is that passion drives passion. And so I recently was having a conversation with the new president of the MSA and just the way that she spoke about the things that they were doing. They've really specifically outlined these six advocacy priorities, really concrete things that they said that they wanted to achieve in this term. And just talking to her, I really got a sense the, of passion from her about the work that was happening. And it really kind of inspired me to, to come back to this role, to come back to these people that I already knew, a position that I already knew and say like, hey, let's let's continue to push change. And so what change do you hope to, to push while you're, you're a part of the board of directors with the MSA? The favorite thing about my role is that I do get to be a voice for students with disabilities, specifically physical disabilities. We have other people on the board who are maybe neurodivergent um, and are registered with accessible learning services, but I really get to bring the perspective of the physically disabled students. Even when I was back on the board in 2021, I was the first student with a visual impairment that had even come across the board. And so they were, we were really working together to decide like, okay, what accommodations are going to be needed? How do we need to structure um, meeting materials and that sort of thing. And they were really great about that. Um, but it just kind of goes to show the further education that needs to happen to go with it. So being able to say like, hey, you've provided all of your meeting materials in PDFs and my screen reader isn't, or my like, Zoom text software isn't compatible with the PDF reader that I like, I can't find one that works. So I'm like, hey, I need, I need these all in Word documents and trying to to refine their processes so that if I'm a student who can't access it, like there's got to be other students out there or barriers to events and what students are able to access because they don't maybe know what an event entails. So they don't know what accommodations to ask for in advance and just kind of being able to say like, hey, this maybe isn't working for this subset of students. 
No, that's that's great work that you're doing within that to help push the uh, kind of the knowledge and awareness for it. As a former Mohawk College student and alumni myself, I I always appreciate it. and I know that the MSA always does a lot of great work to really kind of make sure the space is inclusive to all students. So thank you for that continued work. But in terms of, okay, let's get away from the school. You, it's the holiday season is around the corner. Classes have got to be wrapping up for you soon. You're, you're going to be heading back home soon. So what, what plans do you have for the holiday break, Emily? So I always get super excited to go home and see my family again. I just recently actually visited my sister and it was super rejuvenating, but uh, I'm actually done my classes and I am just waiting for my sister to finish up her exams so that we can head home. And in terms of plans, uh, my family's always kind of, you know, done some sort of excursion or getaway. Sometimes it's going to Collingwood or um, last year we went to Montreal and my mom loves to present these little surprises in various like forms. So one year it was like um, a cut up like puzzle that she made us do, or sometimes she'll give my, my sister the train tickets and me the hotel reservation and my dad the itinerary to kind of give these special little ways of kind of being like, okay, this is the family experience that we're doing. So, so far I've been told we need to make sure we have a bathing suit and our snow stuff at home. And those are the only requirements so far of what I know that is going on. So something is happening, like, you know, usually that time between Christmas and New Year's, we usually have this kind of getaway experience, whatever it may be. Um, so really looking forward to that and seeing what it could be. I, I love that idea. Just uh, keeping everyone somewhat unsure of what the actual plans are. Just be prepared. Mm -hmm. You just need to prepare some things. You don't know what's coming. And so there's part of that excitement. <laughs> uh, in terms of, uh, because last time uh, you were you were on, you were talking about, you know, your solo journey through Toronto and the experience of, of traveling. What? How are you planning to travel back home uh, for the holidays then? You know what? The best part about going home is that you get to go around Toronto. So um, I actually, you know, like I said, I'm waiting for my sister so that we can go home. So she'll travel from London to uh, Hamilton. We'll meet up at Aldershot and then we'll take the GO train, you know, quite literally end to end Aldershot to Oshawa. And then we get picked up in Oshawa together uh, for another little like hour drive home. But um, it's a bit of a... Uh, travel but you know we get to go around the busy city and and it's a lot more of a simple process i've i've done that trip many many times and it, it's definitely is smooth when you don't have to transition in toronto mm -hmm. at union emily thank you so much have yourself a great holiday season and we'll chat with you in 2024. thank you that was emily shavers the founder of true faces and she is also attending mohawk college in hamilton coming up after the break it's time to set your New Year's resolutions, but a new Paula gives you advice on how to better tackle your goals for the new year. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. to now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and streaming and audio on AMIplus.ca. I'm Alex Smythe. The new year is a time of resolutions and goal setting, but how often do those resolutions stick? 
And it may be because the goals being set are not achievable. And there's ways to make small changes that can lead to long lasting resolutions. A new Paula is here with more. And the new is the founder of a new vision coaching and consulting. Hello, new. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Alex. How are you? I'm doing very well. So Anu, before we go any further with this conversation, what is the difference between setting a goal and having a resolution? A resolution is a statement of what you want to change. And many of us make those resolutions, uh, you know, right when the new, the new year strikes. So an example of that would be saving money. A goal, on the other hand, is a statement of what you want to achieve, the steps you need to take to achieve it, and when you want to achieve it by. So you can see it's very specific as to just making a resolution. And so why do you think so many people struggle to reach their goals, especially when they, they set even from resolutions to goals in the new year? Why do so many people struggle to reach them? Well, there are a few reasons, Alex. One is that more often than not, people set unrealistic goals. So for example, uh, I'm going to run a marathon in July, but they haven't worked out in maybe two years. So we know that a marathon is, you know, a, quite a, a big endeavor. Um, so, so setting really in, intentional and realistic goals is very important because we want to set ourselves up for success. Um, often we all don't have clarity when we're creating those goals. So being very clear and specific is also uh, a very important when we're, you know, creating our goals. And there's an effective technique called the SMART goal method, which I've talked about in a previous episode. And the last reason, uh, among others, of course, is limiting beliefs that we have. So for example, I'm not experienced enough, you know, I'm too old for that. So these are like those messages we tell ourselves that limit ourselves from reaching our goals. And so when people are kind of having those struggles or, or facing those, those crises of confidence and, and having those uh, uh, self, uh, like a lack of self-beliefs, how can they overcome those challenges in the moment to maintain their goal or, or to keep going or keep striving for it? Yeah, I think a lot of it is about the, the positive messages that we tell ourselves. And it's really important to be aware that we're having those limiting beliefs about that as well. Because quite often we're just, we get into this mindset, this pattern. And so we don't really acknowledge when, you know, we have those limiting beliefs. So really acknowledging that, okay, this is happening. And that's the first step I would say. And in terms of these, uh, when, when, when resolutions, when goals do come up short, is there a value in, in going through a reflection period or, or examining what worked, what didn't work, or is it better just to wipe the slate clean and start, start fresh? I think there's a lot of value in reflection. I do this a lot in my life throughout the year. So I'm going to give you a couple of techniques around self-reflection. So 
it's really important to first of all acknowledge what went well you know more often than not we just do not take the time to celebrate those accomplishments right away we're like oh i didn't you know i set my goal and i didn't do it you know so really acknowledge those even no matter how big or small those successes may be really celebrate those achievements on the and other hand it's oh yes go ahead no no go uh, continue please I, I didn't mean to cut you off that's totally okay. Um, so along with celebrating those achievements, it's also important to acknowledge the disappointments as well. Um, because that's, you know, one of those things that, you know, we have to look at, okay, what what did we not achieve? And then ask ourselves why we didn't achieve those particular goals. Like, you know, what got in the way? You know, what are the messages that we were told ourselves that, you know, stopped us from achieving those goals? And and that could be, uh, you know, a variety of reasons. Uh, would, would you be able to provide kind of like an example of how someone, like let's say there is a failed goal, maybe around fitness or, or eating right, or, or some of these kind of major goals that most people try to set, like what are uh, kind of um, ways that they could, you know, pull pull something beneficial from, from a goal that they don't reach and, and how they could apply it going forward? Is there an example that you could kind of point to? So, sorry, can you just clarify that? So, so in, in, in terms of, you know, we're talking about, okay, well, maybe there are some positives uh, from failed resolutions and goals that, you know, people can pull forward with them going forward and as they set new goals and things like that. Is there mm. an example that you would be able to kind of help make it tangible for folks at home? Yes, like, of course, of course, it. of course. So I'll give you um, a health goal example in, a, in the smart using the SMART methodology, uh, because I think often uh, around this time of the year, we're looking at how to improve our health. A lot of people focus on weight loss and things like that. So, you know, a poor goal would be that I want to lose weight. You know, that's just like, okay, you want to lose weight, but what does that look like, you know? So here's an example of a really strong goal that would probably set you up for success. So... So implement, uh, implement a minimum of 30 minutes of movement each day, resulting in a reduction of 10% of fat loss and go down two dress sizes. So, you know, it, it's, it's, if using that smart methodology, you know, specific, measurable, actionable, realistic, and time-bound. So this particular goal covers all of those um, you know, ideas that it is smart because, you know, it is very specific. We talk and it's measurable. So we know, you know, how much of that weight, you know, how much fat loss we want to have, how many dress sizes do we want to go down? Is it actionable? Yes, because, you know, we want to implement 30 minutes of movement of some sort. It's not saying what kind of movement, but it's saying, you know, it could be walking, it could be running, it could be dancing, any kind of movement. Um, is it actionable? Yes. And is it realistic? Yes. Because 30 minutes is something we can all implement into our life. We're not saying we're going to work out pump iron three hours a day. You know, it's three, 30 minutes is very realistic and time bound uh, as well. So hopefully that gives people some uh, ideas around how to set a SMART goal. 
Anu, I don't know about you. I'm setting a goal. I'm going to pump iron for three hours a day. No problem. I'm not going to achieve it because it's not realistic. As you pointed out, it's a very key part for a smart and, and achievable goal. But hey, I still yeah. will lie to myself and say that is manageable. Um, but for yourself, what goals are you setting for 2024? Oh, well, I will I will tell you a couple of goals that I have. I don't have it written down in the smartphone formula yet. Um, but absolutely want to continue um, my health journey uh, in terms of just implementing time for self-care. Um, often we're just on this, you know, hamster wheel going, going, going. And so one of my goals for 2024 is to definitely take more time out for self-care. And um, of course, just continuing on, on my business journey and doing more exciting projects and those are just a few examples. Well, it, I'm I'm very excited to to kind of follow the journey in 2024 with you and new. I think for myself, I'm I'm gonna look yes. at you know the maintaining those those health uh, and, and wellness uh, goals. Obviously, I I want to you know live that healthier lifestyle, and it's just obviously in the past it would have been like oh I I want to kind of get fit, lose some weight, things like that, maybe put on some muscle, but it's like, oh, in, in incorporating a kind of this, a, a smarter goal and, and having it more measured be something like, okay, well, I'm going to try to row two to three times uh, a week and do, you know, a an, uh, alternating regimen the other, uh, another two times a week. So you have that kind of balance. And I guess that kind of flow, uh, falls under the idea of it's being smarter. It's being more tangible. There's, there's more steps to the action instead of just, I want to lose weight. Correct, correct. The more specific you are, the more likely you will achieve that goal. Okay, perfect. Thank. That's some great <laughs> advice, Anu. Thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful day and we'll chat again in 2024. Can't wait. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> that was Anu Paula, the founder of A New Vision Coaching and Consulting. Coming up after the break, we find out what's happening on Kelly and Ramya this afternoon. And Elizabeth Moeller wants to continue the conversations around weather and talk about our experiences during ice storms. That's coming up after the break. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. Before we assemble the round table with Elizabeth Moeller and Nisreen Abdelmajid, we first need to check in with Ramia Muthan. We could find out what's taking place on today's episode of Kelly and Ramia. Hello, Ramia. How are you doing? Morning, Alex. I'm doing well. And today we're talking about the Glo Golden Globe nominations. Of course, the nominations came out earlier this week. So uh, we're covering the top TV categories with Greg David. Uh, also, an asteroid will pass in front of Bride to uh, produce a rare eclipse to millions. And Mark Phoenix is going to tell us more about that on the buzz because he's filling in for Bill Shackleton. And on our traveling with JJ Hunt segment, where he describes, like audio describes, 
images and experiences that he's had with his own travel adventures. Uh, he's telling us about the beautiful markets in Fez, Morocco, because of course we're getting oh. festive this time of year. Oh, I, I so desperately want to go check out those markets in Fez. But also to add to the conversation, I know you and Dave have been brainstorming ways to rephrase uh, Mark's uh, fill-in segment yes. for Bill. I I believe hot takes with Mark Phoenix is a better oh. take on it. You know, it's not as direct. Be subtle you still about get the, the fire. fire. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Nice. Subtlety works and it still applies. So. <laughs> Just, just let that sit in your brain a little bit other than uh -huh. fire takes with uh, Mark Phoenix. I like it. So I, I'm not going to say it's going to be better than Dave's. It's just different. <laughs> but since he's not here. <laughs> but since he's not here, I'm in. I'm the captain now. I'm the one offering the suggestion. Anyways, let's move on from this before I get in more trouble. And let's welcome in Elizabeth Moeller, who has the roundtable topic for today. Elizabeth, you want to talk all about ice storms? Yes, from fiery takes to icy takes. Um, <laughs> you know, this day, this day in weather history in Sarnia in 2010, we had a major snowstorm that cost 600 people to be piled up and stranded on Highway 402. Of course, you know, Sarnia is flat, so the snow blowing off the lake, people were going into farmhouses to get warmth. So I thought we would talk all about ice storms and our memories with, with ice storms. Perhaps those of us born a little before 2000 remember the 1998 ice storm. Um, but yeah, memories with ice storms and whatever your experience has been. And I want to start with you, Ramya. Any experiences or, or wild memories from negotiating an ice storm? I don't remember the 1998 one, Elizabeth, although I'm sure my mother does because myself <laughs> and my brother were kids at the time, like five and three. Uh, so it was probably not... Uh, that unforgettable for her um but for me you know the more recent one we had like yeah. i don't know when was that i was 18 was or 2014 oh you might be yeah there. okay yeah i think you're right yeah and that one was um the, when you talk about navigating i don't even think about mobility i think about uh just the you know power outage and um moving things from freezers and the refrigerator to try to compensate for things that weren't working around the house i don't recall how long this storm lasts but i do recall how annoying it was to deal with no power um, for a significant amount of time. And I was living with a roommate at the time and we were actually frustrated with each other because of how <laughs> we thought that we should be handling the groceries and the things that like we've already, the perishable items we already have in the house. And it was pretty rough. Uh, how about for you guys? Oh, yeah. Uh, so for myself, I do remember the 1998 ice storm. Mm -hmm. I, I was a little, little tyke at the time, you know, just eight years old. But um, I do remember just everything completely shutting down. Now, it wasn't as extreme uh, where I was in, in Burlington compared to some other areas. There was still a ton of ice everywhere, still a ton of snow. I remember it was a few days of just not really having access to anything. But being eight years old, you know, I, I made all the fun in the world just being outside playing in the snow and the ice and everything on the front lawn in the backyard. So for me, I remember it not being too bad. Obviously, it's a different take, I'm sure, for my <laughs> my parents at the time trying to be like, how do we keep uh, both an eight-year-old and like a 12-year-old entertained and, and not driving us uh, mad in this household? So um, <laughs> it, 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 and it changes too as, as we 
when the other ice storms later on, like as you mentioned in 2010, and then Ramya, you mentioned other ones as well. I remember just there, there's always like the the kind of planning that I would always undertake whenever I know there's a big storm coming. I, I try to keep kind of grasp on, okay, if this is gonna be bad, I'm gonna stock up so I don't need to worry about getting out and going anywhere for a few days, maybe even like five, six days, if that's the case. I, I always try to be prepared in that regard. Um, thankfully, I, I haven't run into any issues yet where it's like, oh no, I need to go out in the middle of the storm to get something uh, crucial. So I've been fortunate in that regard. Uh, Nisreen, what about you? What memories of ice storms do you have in your mind? It's younger, it was, it was just the sweetest thing when you have such nice neighbors. Um, our power went out and um, a couple of neighbor neighbors uh, spread out some candles even before it hit pretty hard, and uh, it was it was nice to just kind of cuddle around, you know, just sit down and and be all together. <laughs> and even though it was it was dark and there was no power, but we had some candles, we had some flashlights. Uh, but the unforgettable moment was a couple of days later when we went back to school, there were lots of ice hills and a lot of kids, I, I was in elementary school, by the way, a lot of kids were sliding down the hill. So I, I joined them cause they were my friends and somebody bumped into me on top of the hill. I slid down and, uh, fell on my jaw. My eyes started started bleeding. My mouth started Ouch. bleeding. My nose started bleeding. So that was the unforgettable part. And uh, I had to kind of, you know, be in the office with a pack of ice for hours. And it was, it was, that was, that was a rough, rough time. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah, I, I, I can see why it's unforgivable and not in a, a positive way, unfortunately. Yeah, sorry. Uh, Elizabeth, what about you? What, what memories do you have from, from the yeah. ice storms? Yeah, a couple. So 1998, I was in grade maybe seven or eight, and we were actually stuck. I went to a boarding school, W. Ross, some of you might know it. Um, so we were stuck on the weekend at school, which was uh, really interesting. Some people liked it, some people didn't. Um, and like we said, doing lots of different activities. Um, we had a power outage, which was quite uh, interesting to sort of navigate at school. And then in the 2014 ice storm, um, I was on a via rail coming home from uh, visiting friends. It was around the Christmas holidays and the train actually um, stopped. We were we were stranded for a number of hours, probably six or seven hours on board. They actually at one point ran out of food and water. Um, oh. And I think to Nazreen's port, like pe people point, people were really, really helpful, um, sharing snacks, sharing whatever drinks they had. Um, but it was a little bit scary because we just didn't know when we're, when we're going to be able to move again. And then I came home um, and our power was out in our apartment building and at my family home so there was no way to actually cook our turkey so we cooked it on the barbecue that christmas which was an interesting experience um but i had these moments of feeling very much like i was in a little house on the prairie or something but also moments of on a more serious note thinking about you know how i need to prepare i i live in an apartment building and so um if i needed to get out um and icicles they are they are beautiful but they can be very dangerous so just even being mindful when i'm outdoors about like okay how do i navigate yes. and make sure that i don't actually get slipping on ice, but also ice, you know, ice goals dropping on me. Um, so yeah, That's I good. mean, since then I've, 
I put it. Yeah, I know me too. So since then I put like a safety plan in place with some neighbors in my corridor, um, because unfortunately we are in a world now with many different storms and natural weather occurrences. But um, yeah, I think the biggest thing for me that, that really stands out and we've all touched on it is that sense of community that happens when we're coming together around some kind of a disaster. And you, you mentioned a safety plan briefly, just like, tell us what, what goes into that yeah. safety plan? Cause I've, I, I've yes. never considered anything like that. Yeah. So for me, um, we have a WhatsApp group in our corridor in my building. And what I've done is just reach out to a couple of folks um, to put a plan in place in case there is inclement weather. So that means um, checking in on, on me to make sure that I'm okay. Um, making sure that if there's issues with power, um, that I have support around sort of um, flashlights and candles, because candles are not something that I feel comfortable doing, um, and lighting. Also just making sure that, um, you know, th those check-in points around um, if power goes down, helping me find perhaps a place in the building where the generator is working, if it is at all, or a warming space. Um, and then also just kind of checking into around, you know, running errands if there's anything that I need. Um, you know, although we we live in an age of delivery services, those aren't always available in storms. So the plan is really just with me and a couple of neighbors to make sure that, um, and it's a two-way street, I check in on them as well, but that they're doing those kind of check-ins. And if they don't hear from me coming to my door to say, hey, we haven't heard, are you okay? Nizreen, what do you make of uh, Elizabeth's uh, kind of safety plan? Do you have anything like that uh, kind of in place with, with you and in, in your, your uh, circle to make sure that everyone's okay in times of like an emergency like that? I love, love that idea. I just moved into this building, so I'm just trying to get to know the neighbors still um, at the elevator in the hallway, just saying hi there. It's lovely to see that there's a connection there and to check on each other, even when it's a rough time. Uh, so it's a great idea. Um, if I were to be in this situation, I'd say the only like backup I'd have is lots and lots and lots and lots of candles because I'm obsessed with candles and <laughs> lots of lots of lots of throws because I'm obsessed with throws. So I think I'd be safe in those <laughs> in that category. But um, having a connection is such a great idea. Yeah, you're safe as long as the throws don't meet those candles, Nizri. Yeah, that's... <laughs> Ram, Ramya, you have uh, about 30 seconds. Like, uh, give us your thoughts on, like, kind of having an emergency plan or or, or something ready in case Just... of an emergency. Just even if it's informally, make sure you have people that you can check in on and that they can check in on you. Because as you said, Elizabeth, whether or not it's a protocol, it's just helpful to have people who are there um, and who can say, hey, is everything good? How can I help when the time comes, right? Even if it's reactive. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Thank you all for chiming in on this round table. That's all the time we have on the show. Thanks to all my guests who were on today. Take care. We'll chat with you tomorrow. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.